on your own terms. I'm Patty Talbot, and this is the place where we learn together what it takes to change the world on our own terms and in our own special ways. Today, I am so thrilled to have with me Sarah Dector. Sarah is the Comprehensive Planning Manager for the city of Flagstaff, Arizona. I met Sarah because she was one of few people who actually responded to my invitation to connect through LinkedIn. And I was thrilled because I am always looking for amazing women who are changing the world on their own terms and in their own special ways. Sarah has a special skill set and a special way of approaching city and community planning that can inform all of us no matter what kind of changes we're trying to bring about through our professional work or our community work, because her message is so strongly about inclusion and storytelling and bringing in the voices of people who are often left out of very important decision-making conversations that impact them, their lives, and their communities. Sarah has agreed to tell her change-making story today using our Blue Roads framework, Homegrown Solutions for a Patchwork World. Welcome, Sarah Dector. Where I came from really is part of the story of how I became an urban planner. I grew up in Pensacola, Florida, which is the oldest settlement in the United States. And so the history of my community went back hundreds of years, which is not something you'd say about where I work now or other places in the U.S. And so having access to a place with such deep roots and history, I think really shaped me in thinking about place as a part of our story. And my family didn't really live in Pensacola, so it was just me and my nuclear family there. And my extended family is a big Irish clan from St. Louis, Missouri, and then some very quiet, lovely farm people from Iowa. So I have this kind of big city idea, but I also really love nature, conservation, agriculture, and the bigger set of communities. So my career has really reflected that too, because I spent 10 years in environmental planning, doing resource conservation work with the USDA Forest Service. And then I got back into urban planning where I'm doing urban development and community development. That's really given me an opportunity to kind of take who I am and what the stories my family really inspired me with growing up and the place I grew up. And it's really all come together for me in the field of urban planning, which is, I think, something people misunderstand as a career. They don't really know what you do when you say you're an urban planner. Um, so one of the things that really inspired me about Pensacola was that the it's a community that's been experiencing hurricanes and disruption for as long as it's been a place. And I always was really fascinated with hurricanes and what was going on, but I was also really fascinated with the recovery of how the city went from being something and then having this big event, and then it changed. And it changed over and over and over again. It was never a place that was static or boring. So I think that that was part of what really interested me. The reason there's always a St. Augustine and Pensacola argument is that Pensacola was founded and then St. Augustine was founded and then Pensacola got wiped off the map by a hurricane. 
and was abandoned for a few years. And so there's this back and forth between the two places. But I think of resiliency and of, of a place being something that's laboratory for change and identity as being a really important part of what I learned observing my community growing up. One of the things that really matters to me is really inclusive collective decision-making, which I think is really hard to do. It is hard to take a community of people who are all here for a different reason and they bring their values and their stories and to make a decision together because those decisions matter to us both in the moment and they matter for generations ahead of us. We often have to really be conscientious about how we make those processes work and live. And so it doesn't matter what I'm working on. I can work on a parks project or I can work on a transportation project or I can be working on a land use project like I am right now with the, the general plan update for my city. But one of the core things that it's really easy to kind of gloss over is how do we make meaningful, inclusive, collective decisions that serve us not just now, but for decades to come. And that's really where my passion is, is finding a way to do that, that heals and reconciles and builds community and builds trust and credibility within our community. And I always tell people, I never do the same process or the same meeting twice. I approach process with a lot of intention that we think about purpose carefully. We think about who we are gathering and why incredibly carefully. And we think about what it is we're trying to accomplish very carefully. So for instance, I work on this neighborhood plan in my community. And neighborhood planning is an art that's been around for a long time. But I think in the 21st century, it's really got a different focus than it did prior. It's not about keeping people out of your neighborhood or just historic preservation. It can also be about healing wounds and stories. And so some of the neighborhoods I have worked in in Flagstaff have been ones that have experienced redlining and discrimination. And what I do in those is I often have a partner who's a community member, maybe they're the neighborhood association president, maybe they're just somebody who's considered an elder in a community. And we build a partnership that starts with foundationally, who are you and who is this neighborhood for? And how do we tell the story of this place? And then we start talking about all the nitty gritty stuff that planners and engineers really wanna dive into. They wanna dive into site plans and street designs. And we really never get at good answers for those or satisfactory answers if we don't understand our place, the people who are tied to that place in a really meaningful way that's from their own perspective. In fact, working on the Southside Neighborhood Plan, which we won several awards for, one of the best compliments I ever got about that plan was an attorney was reading it and I, I dearly love this attorney, but she looked at it and she says, this doesn't sound like the city wrote it. It sounds like the neighborhood wrote it. And when we accomplish that, which doesn't sound like a very government thing to do, I think we are making change. We are making a voice come through in a way that it hasn't had the freedom to do before. And that can inspire very different decision-making and inspire us to approach challenges in a different way than we would have prior to taking the time to have those meaningful conversations and building that story of place, that story of identity, 
and that story of who a community is. One of the easiest things I do is I just ask people, who should I talk to? And I keep asking, who should I talk to? Till they've exhausted the list that people can come up with. So I might start in one conversation with someone who maybe has like a formal position. Maybe they run a nonprofit. Maybe they run the neighborhood association. Maybe it's one of my council members at the city. And then I ask them, who should I talk to? Who's important to talk to about this? And I go to that person, I ask the same question. You know, you could come up with a list and run like formal stakeholder interviews. I feel like a lot of consultants I work with and a lot of folks get trained to do that. But just remembering to end every conversation you have with who else should I talk to? Who else should I talk to? You find your way to those people. Then you figure out that they are have been the quiet leaders of their community for a generation or maybe two generations. And while they've never had a formal position, they maybe are the matriarch of a large family, or they are, you know, somebody who, because they were in the altar guild at the church, knows everybody's kids. You know, whatever that reason is, is it's really interesting who ties a community together. And it's not always the people whose name is on a business card. Yeah, I think there are planners that want to do work this way all throughout my profession. For me, the way I arrived at it, though, is by making terrible and embarrassing mistakes in public over and over again until I figured out why it wasn't working. And I do think that there is in any career where you're you're building a different approach, where you're building culture in your profession, you've got to be willing to stick your neck out there and look stupid. And that sounds funny to say, but I've definitely looked stupid in many rooms I've had. Moments like um, when I was very young planner, just like an intern, I grown up in the panhandle of Florida, but I went to college at a very um, prestigious top 20 college. I went to the University of Notre Dame. And so I came back to my community and I was bringing all this great knowledge and philosophy and theology and all the things that I had taken and incorporated into myself as a professional. And I put it in a best presentation I could come up with in that moment. And a very Southern gentleman basically told me, I don't speak as well as you, but I deserve to be listened to here. And it really took all the wind out of my sails in that moment was he said, what you're bringing here is not what we're asking for. And I grew up there, so I should have known better. I should have, but I'd gone away and I'd brought all my good things back. And I was like, oh, what did I do? What did I do here that didn't connect with him? Because I brought him the right information and I brought training back to my community. And I had really thought, oh, I've got a solution here that I'm really proud to share. And it, it was wrong. It was dead wrong. I had a great mentor named Becky Cato, who is retired now. She's to be the planning director of Santa Rosa County, Florida. So Becky in that moment, talk to me in a really compassionate way about failure and learning and what it meant to put yourself out there for your community. And I think that that is why planners show up at work. Like planners don't show up at work to measure a setback. That's not why we took a profession like this. We do it because we believe communities change and grow economically, socially, educationally, environmentally through the medium of place. With, this is our ecosystem and we are unique, probably the only comparable animals like ants, we build our ecosystem. And there are a lot of insects that do that and people who do that, but people are really like the best on the planet at building our ecosystem. And when we do it well, 
we can change the world. And when we do it badly, we can have devastating consequences for the planet and for the people on it and for the whole ecosystem that we're a part of. And so when I learned to show up that way, I think it was because there was a planner out there who had 25 more years of experience than me, who, when I showed up and failed, didn't tell me not to do that again. Don't put your vulnerability on the line. Don't put your, your pride or your feelings out in front. She could have come at me with that kind of approach, but she didn't. She said, you did so much right with your heart and your gut. And then you got to keep tuning that in. Heart and gut has to be tuned into the community you're in. And that's why I work in local planning and I don't work as a consultant or off somewhere as I want to be tied to place. I've got to have the temperature of my community and I've got to keep taking it to be successful at leading change and leading collective decision-making that moves our community forward. It's even scarier now because people videotape my mistakes. Like when I'm presenting at a meeting, there is a video recording of me screwing up. You really have to wear that with dignity and self-respect and humility. Diversity is an ever-changing part of what I do. And I have a deep respect for lived experiences that I have gained through being the kind of planner who works in stories and works in stories about place. So I think that informs me very much on why I can't ever like go, I have a, I know how to do this kind of plan and I do it the same way everywhere. I have to be very thoughtful about having moments where I know the story and I know what diversity means to the people I'm working with right now. Because when you talk about diversity as a big topic, it brings in a lot of things for people, but there's so many lived experiences whether you're doing this work professionally, whether you're doing it through your religious community, whether you're doing it through a social organization, I think that there is always an opportunity to build human connection at the center of diversity. And boy, because of all the systems that have absorbed the things that divide us, it is very hard sometimes to make that connection, especially if you're wearing a label of a neighborhood advocate or a planner or city official, all of those things can carry the weight of history with them. One of my favorite things we ever did at a public meeting was I had a a colleague who was, they were being a consultant for kind of a nonprofit in town. Her name is Andy Rogers and they work for Southwest Decision Resources. And they printed, designed for us, we printed out a poster that like took up a whole room And it was a timeline of our community. And we said, why don't you put the things that matter to you, the memories you have from 1920 to today that were national or state things that were influencing you and the community. And then also the things that mattered, like this is the year my grandpa built our house. This is the year I graduated high school. And we put this past, present and future timeline together. And when you looked at this timeline, it really told the collective stories in a way that you can't do just by writing it down or writing a novel. It really let people participate in telling the community story, little pieces maybe, or big pieces. Some people went down the whole timeline and they just wrote something every decade. 
Some people just went and put their one special spot on it. And the experience of watching that activity really told me what was happening in the community and where people felt connected. Where were people putting stars? Where were people going in and adding more to something someone else had written? And so it's not just getting it on paper or getting it on a video. It's also just experiencing the creation of that story. We make better decisions together. We all have so much to learn from each other. And we are open to creating decisions together that are meaningful and processes that are inclusive. We just do a better job at making decisions. It's it's that simple. I hope I inspire people to not hit the easy button. When I do trainings or when I offer workshops, don't just get what's required done. Think about how what you are building is a building block that creates more, that creates more opportunity, more connection, more hope, more credibility. All of those things can be built out of these processes. And I think that we too often say, well, let's just do what's legal. Let's just do what we need to do because we're short on resources. We're short on funding. We're short on time. We're short on staff. Those are all excuses in a way that are very real and they can stress us out and burn out people in any any field. But I also think that they can be excuses that keep us from opening ourselves up to that moment of failing and learning that open us up to thinking about a different way of doing things. And so I really want to be the kind of leader that is really just counseling us to keep embracing change and to not be afraid of change. I think one of the things I've said to you earlier on was that sometimes I'm not a change maker. I'm a change counselor. Change is inevitable. It's the only constant in the world. Everyone gets a little reaction, right? When they think of change, they get the, what will that mean? How do I feel? And you tighten in a way that I think if you help people reimagine change as a growth uh, that is meaningful, an evolution that um, much like I talked about with the hurricanes, hurricanes came and they're devastating. And then you build something new and then it's a new place. And that when you think about change that way, I think it allows people to relax a little and be able to accept change because it is inevitable that we are going to have experiences that we never expected. I mean, what fun would life be if we only got what we expected, right? (laughs) So we want to get the moment where we're surprised by the serendipity of life and counseling people so that they can walk into a decision-making process with the hope and openness to that kind of experience is really how we move the needle on a lot of topics I think that are tough for communities to talk about. Maybe you're talking about flood control. Maybe you're talking about climate change. Maybe you're talking about the history of racism in your community. Those are really difficult conversations. And to inspire those conversations to be had in hope is a real challenge for anyone who's thinking about them as a problem. One of the best tools I have is asking questions asking questions in a way um, that is Bernard Shaw said, he said, you want to ask a question in a way that allows a solution. So, you know, asking questions is just frustrate us and lead nowhere. 
won't help conversations in big community settings move forward. People will move to, you know, their defensive mechanisms. They'll be blamey. So the city's fault, they'll be defensive. They'll be sort of check out and leave the meeting. So how do you form questions that invite community? Questions that invite connection. And I spend a lot of time thinking about that. Anytime we're asking a question, it's not just a survey. It's an opportunity to build that and to carry it forward into whatever we're working on. So it's really hard because you want to have answers. Like I think people join design fields and technical fields because they want answers and they like answers and they like assurities in their answers. But thinking about asking difficult, careful, thoughtful questions is actually the art to that science. It is, it is a challenging time because of polarization to invite people to community conversation. A good example for us right now is carbon neutrality and climate change. The city of Flagstaff has adopted a carbon neutrality plan, and we have said we want to be carbon neutral with offsets by 2030, and that we want to then reduce our reliance on offsets. And I'm not an expert in how that works for climate change, but that's the, the meat of our community conversation right now. And there are people who don't want to engage in that conversation. And there are people who are in that conversation who don't want us to engage the people who disagree with them. They say they're going to water down our decision making if we ask them to be part of the solution. And then the people who feel left out because of that attitude, they also say, well, if you don't want me involved, I'm just going to oppose it. And so I always ask them, like, what is it we actually have to ask ourselves to have a community conversation about climate change? And that is harder. Does it matter if we agree on the source of climate change? Does it matter if we agree on something like what's going to happen in the Sahara because of climate change? Like, what are the questions we have to answer? Because people who care about those topics have lots of ideas and lots of sources they're using to inform their values and their ideas around it. And one thing we do do is we make it incredibly clear and have boundaries about not excluding people. Like it's, that's an interesting boundary that you have to hold is say, we're not excluding people because they don't agree. We will invite them because they don't agree. And whether you were talking about race, whether you were talking about climate change, whether you were talking about you know, reproductive health, those are not all urban planning topics. Sometimes they tie in and sometimes they don't, no matter what you're talking about. When you have no invitation to, to share across those um, disagreements, it breaks down and it polarizes. And so we work hard to keep setting the table, keep offering places people can talk to us and talk to each other in disagreement, a productive disagreement. Isn't that like a really useful idea, but also a very hard idea to implement. I've been working in urban planning for 20 years now, which feels weird. I still feel like I just started and there's so much before me to do. I think one of the successes I'm most proud of is the way that we have been able to build teams in my organization. I came from some different trainings because when I first got here, I had been an urban planner as a student, then I got into the Forest Service. They are caring for the land and serving the people for 100 years plus, and they are very dedicated to national forests and to all the benefits they offer in terms of water and recreation and community. And when I came to the city, 
it, in Flagstaff in particular, it wasn't a team oriented environment. Like they didn't do a lot of team building the way I had learned to do it in the Forest Service. Um, and Forest Service teams weren't always functional and city teams aren't always credibly functional. But I became really intentional about making our teams feel like a place people were heard and teams as a way that people could feel productive. Like I think the number one complaint people have about teams is they waste time and I could do more by myself, right? How many people have approached a team project that way and say, if I could just do this by myself, it'd be done so much faster. And we definitely took the opportunity to say, what are our practices about teams that make them more productive, more successful, more inclusive, and what are they not? And then as we built those practices, and so some of those practices are we charter our teams. We have a meeting that's like, well, let's talk about how we're going to do what we need to do instead of just jumping into doing something. And we get feedback and they never look the same. And we also then took that into the community. So when we started community conversations about a neighborhood plan or a park reimagining or a street project, we said, let's not just do this internally. They're part of the team, this community members who are interested in this. Why don't we treat them like team members? Why don't we bring them in and ask them, how should we do what we need to accomplish together? And have them be a part of the how. I, I'm unique in some ways. I'm the only certified planner in the U.S. who's also a certified public participation professional. And so I have these two organizations that I'm very proud to be a part of, the American Planning Association and the International Association for Public Participation. And there's so much that anyone could learn from both of those organizations. Maybe you're not a planner and that's not where you should plug in, but IEP2 and APA are incredible organizations. They do the kind of training and development that seems like anybody could do it, but it's actually often really skilled work that has to be done with great passion and enthusiasm. And I think- Thank you, Sarah. I am inspired and moved and motivated to get involved in my community in new ways. And as someone who's worked through continuous improvement projects and processes through my career in public education, I see so many parallels in the importance of bringing in all the players and working with diverse points of view, diverse experiences to get people involved in making changes around the communities, the schools, the workplaces that they serve. So I hope people will follow your work and get involved in the organizations that you've mentioned so that they can keep informed about what's happening in their own communities. I know our audience can see the ways that Sarah exhibits the attributes that change makers have in common. This is a woman who takes action in her doing this and has a wonderfully inclusive way of approaching problem solving with creativity and innovative ideas and bringing in the creative and innovative ideas of others. You can hear the themes of social emotional intelligence, empathy, she is clearly an effective communicator, and you can see how she engages her cultural competencies to think about the perspectives of others who've had different experiences from her own. She reflects outwardly what she believes in as she reflects on what it is that she's doing, where she's made powerful right steps, and occasionally a little bit of misstep. 
but she never misses an opportunity for learning. These characteristics are key to change makers like Sarah and to change makers like you. If you want to build your skills and your courage as a change maker so that you can make a difference in the world like Sarah is doing, please get in touch with me at Patty, P-A-T-T-I, at blueroadseducation.org. We are doing amazing things with amazing folks like you to celebrate your work as change makers, to support the work that you're doing as change makers, to help you cultivate the skills that you need as a change maker and create a community of powerful women from all around the world using their skills and their energy to best effect, to show up and change the world on their own terms. I'll see you next time when we feature another powerful woman changemaker who is doing her best to change the world on her terms. In the meantime, may you be grounded in your own beingness, guided in your doingness, generous in your connectedness, and inspired in your reflectiveness so you can change the world on your own terms. I'm Patty Talbot. I'm always learning, and I know you are too. Thank you.